0: This is the anatomy of a scream pod squad network.
1: Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror. My name is Nicole. I'm your host and I'm thrilled to have you here. Now just over a month ago, I got the opportunity to sit down with my dear friend, Andrew, or Andred, from the Freaks and Psychos podcast to talk about one of his favorite films. This is such a special episode and I'm thrilled to share it with you all because I don't think that there's anything quite as magical about talking to someone about a film that really means a lot to them. I really, really love the film that we get into and I hope that you will too. And I hope that you enjoy this episode. I just wanted to kind of put out there that this was recorded just over a month ago because he does reference the upcoming episode that he had on his podcast around werewolves. Well, that has since dropped as well as an amazing episode on audio description and its impact for individuals that are visually impaired. So please give not only the werewolves, not only the audio description episodes a listen, but Really dig into that uh, back catalog as well, because every episode is worth a listen. So thank you, Andrew, for spending time with me talking about this film, and I hope that you all enjoy this episode. Well, today, before I talk about what film is going to be discussed, what's on the examination table, if you will, I have a guest. That's right. Bodies of Whores first guest on the show. I am thrilled to have Andrew from the Freaks and Psychos podcast. Hi, Andrew.
0: Hi, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Of course. I am a huge fan of the podcast and you had me on your show to talk about Run a while back and I could not think of a better introductory guest, if you will, for this show. So I don't know
0: if you want to take a couple of moments to talk about freaks and psychos. Yeah, of course. So uh Andrew Sidlick here, aka Andred, that's my horror moniker. And I started Freaks and Psychos, a podcast about disability in the horror genre, looking at movies and films dealing with disability. I started that last year. And, you know, I I also had graduated with my PhD last year in English literature with a specialization in disability studies. And I really wanted to continue to, to bring the things I learned about in disability studies To continue to explore those ideas. I'm not an academic, properly speaking. Um, You know, I haven't gone into teaching or anything like that, but I wanted to kind of bring those concepts to a popular audience because it's one of those fields that just has not really gotten kind of beyond the academy and the way that things like feminism. And anti-racism, critical race theory, things like that have kind of gotten more into mainstream awareness. And disability studies has has not really gotten there yet, I don't think. And you know, I'm a lifelong horror fan. That's really kind of my go-to kind of film or reading pleasure. I go to horror usually. And so I kind of wanted to bring those two things together and so I had kind of made connections within people uh, in the horror podcasting circles to see if they would be interested. And I, so I had some ideas for, for possible guests and I decided to go ahead. And it's been a great experience so far. 17 episodes in so far. Uh, well, the 17th one is about werewolves. I haven't released that yet. Um, but each episode takes a deep dive into a specific book or film and looking really into the themes, the representations of disability, what what basically what I and whatever guest I have on it's a revolving door of, of guests each new new guest each episode into, you know, what we what we think is going on and what we think the the story is Trying to communicate about disability and kind of looking in into some of the cultural attitudes that may be implied, um, not always outright stated, but m- might be lurking beneath the surface, or the other episodes like the werewolves episodes. Uh, did one on slashers, Christmas horror, kind of takes a subgenre or topic and kind of just examines. You know, sometimes you see patterns within particular focuses in horror. So I'm interested in kind of thinking about that as well. That about sums it up, of course, the title, which may seem maybe one of those titles that seems exactly what are you saying here? You're calling it Freaks and Psychos, two kind of pejorative terms, right? But of course, Freaks and the movie Psycho are two iconic representations of disability. And I think also just kind of capture... The breadth of disability representation and thinking about both physical disabilities as well as mental disabilities, and so we try to really cover the gamut and be kind of broad and inclusive in our thinking about what actually Constitutes or, or qualifies as a disability, kind of open ended.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the things I've found really engaging about your podcast, and I know that I've mentioned this before we hit record, but you do a really great job at doing a deep dive into really examining, I think, intersections, interesting intersections of mental health and disability. You know, one of the things that I have touched on, I think, very, very lightly here in past episodes are, you know, mental health and mental illness. But having the primary focus be on physical and intellectual and developmental disability, it's really great that you're really kind of uh, looking at some of those uh, important intersections as well in some of your discussions.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, I am not an expert on... (laughs) Any any of the many different ways to think about disability, you know, there and so that's that's one thing that, you know, it can be a little scary sometimes to delve into maybe a a topic because it kind of knowing about disability issues doesn't necessarily mean that you are an expert on like particular disabilities, the, the each of uh, each kind of disability, you know, presents its own challenges and issues. And of course, mm-hmm. there's overlaps between disabilities as well. But, you know, just trying to be cognizant of that. And it's more of the sense of just wanting to open up these conversations rather than necessarily saying, this is the final word, or this is, you know, the right way to think about this topic.
1: Absolutely. No. So I, I'm a big fan and I'm so glad that you are able to chat with me about a film. So the film that we are going to be talking about today is Wait Until Dark. I was so excited when you mentioned wanting to talk about this one. It's a film that I mentioned in the Hush episode, but haven't covered it yet. And you said that this is a film that is one of your favorites and has kind of a special place for you. So I'm really excited to dig into this movie. So uh, let's get a little bit of that setup of the film going and let's dig into our plot. All right. So this plot synopsis, as all of the plot synopsis here typically come from Wikipedia. A woman named Lisa takes a flight from Montreal to New York City, rolling bags of heroin sewn inside an old-fashioned doll. When she disembarks, Lisa becomes worried upon seeing a man watching her at the airport and gives the doll to a fellow passenger, professional photographer Sam Hendricks, for safekeeping. She is roughly escorted away by the other man. A few days later, con artist Mike Tallman and Carlino arrive at the apartment of Sam and his wife Susie, believing it to be Lisa's residence. Harry wrote, the man who met Lisa at the airport arrives to persuade Tallman and Carlino to help him find the doll. After the con men discover Lisa's body, rope blackmails them into helping him dispose of it and convinces them to help him find the doll. While Sam is on the photography assignment, the criminals begin an elaborate con game using Susie's blindness against her and posing as different people to win her trust. Implying that Lisa has been murdered and that Sam will be suspected, the men persuade Susie to help them find the doll. Mike gives her the number for the phone booth across the street as his own after falsely warning her of a police car outside. Gloria, a girl who lives upstairs and who had borrowed the doll earlier, sneaks in to return it. She reveals to Susie that there is no police car outside. After calling Mike and realizing it is the phone booth's phone number, Susie realizes that the three are criminals and hides the doll. She tells them that the doll is at Sam's studio and the three leave after Rote cuts the telephone cord. Carlino stays behind to stand guard outside the building. Susie sends Gloria to the bus station to wait for Sam. When she discovers that the telephone cord has been cut, she prepares to defend herself by breaking all the light bulbs in the apartment except for that of the safe light. When Mike returns, he he realizes that she knows the truth and demands the doll, but she refuses to cooperate. Mike admits to Susie that he and his Confederates are part of a criminal plot, while rote is the particular danger. He assures her that he has sent Carlino to kill Rote. However, having anticipated their plan, Rote has killed Carlino instead, and he then kills Mike on the doorstep of Susie's apartment. Intent on inquiring the doll, Rote threatens to set the apartment on fire. Susie finally agrees to give him the doll throws a chemical at Rote's face and unplugs the safe light as the apartment is pulled, plunged into darkness. Rote uses matches to see, but Susie douses him with gasoline, forcing him to put out the match. Rote finally produces light by opening the refrigerator. Susie, realizing that she has lost the battle, pulls the doll out from the hiding place and hands it to him. While Rote is distracted with it, Susie is able to arm herself with a kitchen knife. Rote then tries to walk Susie to the bedroom but she stabs him and flees. She is unable to escape the chained front door and stumbles to the kitchen window to scream for help. The rope grabs her ankle. She wrenches free and conceals herself behind the refrigerator door. Just as he stands to stab her, she unplugs the refrigerator, leading to total darkness yet again. The police arrive with Sam and Gloria. Susie is found unharmed behind the refrigerator door while the dead Rote rests nearby, disabled by a toppled shelf so that is the plot talk to me a little bit about this film and why it was something that spoke to you something that makes it personal and one of your favorites
0: for me what was hugely important uh, about my first viewing of this film was at that time it was probably around 15 to 20 years ago or so first saw it and at that point I really had not thought much about disability, thought much about my blindness necessarily as a part of my identity. Of course, I thought about being blind, but I I didn't have the awareness of it as a kind of personal and cultural identity that I do now. And I had not seen too many protagonists who were blind characters at that point. And so, you know, I had I was familiar with Daredevil, the Marvel superhero, but in the case of that character, really wasn't uh, the experiences of blindness were not really necessarily part of his story. It was kind of more gave a novelty to his superpowers, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had seen minor characters like the blind man in Suspiria. Um, but they usually were not main characters or they they just did not really explore the kind of the issues that blind people face. So wait until dark really excited me to see to see a main character who was blind and uh, had had nuance to her, you know, both struggling with limitations and anxieties, which is something I I did have awareness of, of, you know, the the, the various uh, difficulties of living with blindness, Mm -hmm. Um, but also having a resourcefulness to her being clever and ultimately being a badass and fighting off this psychopathic criminal in rote. And so it was it was great to see not only um, a blind character who was taking center stage, but also a blind character who had a strength to her and was someone who was was really struggling to accept her blindness, but also was not letting that hold her back.
1: Yeah, I think the first time I saw this movie i think it was like on cable and i watched it with my mom i thought it was such an interesting kind of concept because like you were saying there's not a lot of you know protagonists with you know sensory disabilities in horror or in thrillers um because i mean a lot of people kind of classify this as more of the kind of thriller suspense thriller subgenre. but i was pretty young and i was like oh this is this kind of cool kind of interesting but you know it's been i've Seen it a couple of times as I've gotten older, and you really do appreciate more of these moments with Susie. There are a few times where she's calling out her husband, being like, You just want me to be the perfect blind woman, um, yes, and to be able to do all of these things on my own, I think being someone that's grown up with a disability and someone that my mom was really, you know, supportive and was great in terms of making sure that I had kind of an understanding of my disability and it wasn't something to be ashamed of. Getting involved in going to disability camp and being part of different self-advocacy groups, there is this, I don't know, There, there is this idea of like, oh, well, yeah, I have to do this because I have to be the shining star of what a disabled person uh, should be. And by doing all of these things, that's going to make me a more valuable person in the eyes of non-disabled folks in my life. And so I, re-watching it, I really focused in on that because she says it just, so directly no like i want to do it my way what's comfortable for me
0: right exactly yeah and that's one thing that especially in in recent rewatches of this that that really spoke to me just about how she is trying to work out exactly what it means for her because she's Kind of navigating blindness is a new experience. She mm-hmm. has—it's been like a year since she has become blind through a car accident, I believe they mentioned. Yeah, and she's still trying to figure out what that means, and sometimes feels that her husband Sam is pushing her a little too hard. She says the one line is, do I have to be the world's champion blind lady? Mm -hmm. And I, I'm sure that a lot of disabled people can, can relate to that idea where you have to, you have to be the, the best. There's actually the, a term for a sort of representation of this, the super crip where yeah. it's the disabled person who has risen above their disability by having, you know, awesome uh, power skills or abilities to the, to the extent where they're essentially not even disabled anymore. They're not, right. you know, they're still physically disabled, but like it's like with daredevil where his other abilities compensate so much for the blindness that doesn't actually affect him kind of significant way. And, you know, it's, it's a pressure. It is a pressure of conformity where, like you said, it's, it's trying to get disabled people to be as much like non-disabled people as possible mm-hmm. And so that can be that can be a very harmful, harmful concept. Now, of course, having a sense of independence and self-reliance is also something, you know, that disabled people want. But that concept looks a little bit differently for disabled people i think then it is popular popularly understood where it it you know self reliance or independence means being able to do everything on your own at all times versus more of concept of interdependence where you know, you're able to do what you can to, to your full potential, but you also recognize that no one can do things on their own. We always rely on people for things all the time. And so it's more of like working together to achieve mutual independence rather than being this fully independent being who mm-hmm. <laughs> can do everything on your own. So I think she had, Susie is definitely struggling with that. And yeah, that just really resonated with me because I I think growing up, ironically, how this sometimes works is that parents really did not know how to talk to me about being blind or help me to understand it. And so their approach is more like, well, don't, you know, don't let it hold you back to anything. Don't, don't worry about it but there was no recognition of like, well, what about the limitations I do have? How do I deal with that? What about when people exclude me and I can't, I, you know, I can be as self-reliant as possible. What if I'm excluded, I can't do anything. I mean, I have a barrier to access. So, you know, the, the lack of recognition of that, I think is, is something that, People don't realize is it's it's not it's not something you you don't want to promote the idea of dependence of total Mm -hmm. dependence, but at the same time just acting like there's 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 no limitations or acting as though. You don't depend on people in certain ways is also equally harmful.
1: Exactly. Right before Sam heads off on his assignment, some things get knocked over in the kitchen. He's like, you need to pick them up. I'm not going to tell you where them are, where they are. I would just tell you if something you couldn't reach it. I don't know. I kind of bristle at that because the, the quote that you mentioned earlier, the I have to be the champion blind lady. He says, yes yes, you do. And she doesn't take it. And she just becomes very defiant to that something that especially because she's you you mentioned newly blind, she's really having to learn about the world in a brand new way. She's having to adjust the things that she does on a day. To day. The minute it happens that you have this ability. It's something that just like with anyone we learn as we go through life as we garner more experience and she's new to this experience and so it just feels like you can feel the pressure that she has and that you know I'm still trying to figure stuff out but you're wanting me to do all of these things that are still uncomfortable and
0: right yeah exactly
1: and yeah it's it's something I found really interesting about their relationship because they do obviously love each other. I think yeah. that's something that's really clear. They do have, I think, a good relationship, but yes. she's, you know, I I appreciate that you are getting this fully realized experience just in this setup with her character. She's experienced this change in her life she's now blind and she's really processing what that means it's not a story where she's desperately trying to fit into a certain mold for sam because she pushes back against him and it really makes the character really relatable and really interesting um, overall We get a character that's blind or deaf it becomes the whole thing about their character where her personality you know she has a line about but i wish i could do things like the souffle or pick a necktie choose the wallpaper for the bedroom these are things that she's coming to terms with like i'm not gonna be able to do that in the same way but were probably things i like to do before so i just I, i i love how fully formed and interesting the character of susie is from the moment that we meet her
0: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, she kind of has a bit of an arc in relation to this, I think, because like you're saying, she is pushing back against Sam, but I think she is also kind of full of doubt as well Mm -hmm. and not knowing whether she can do these things or whether how much she can rely on herself, how much she can do things on her own. Through the course of the film, I think one interesting component of her battle of wits between. Wrote and and the other two, Mike and Carlino, is that she does it with the aid of this little girl that previously she had, had an antagonistic relationship with. But they come to kind of work together, planning things out. They're figuring things out together, and I think that is kind of the the representation of interdependence that that can that that is. M- perhaps healthier or or at least less controlling than this sense of like well you're just gonna do it on your own you know so I, I really like that and I I like the the character of Gloria as well and you know she is also very resourceful and, and smart and is kind of a, a bit of a, an outcast herself you know that they mentioned she's bullied and stuff like that mm-hmm. so kind of really r- like that relationship between Susie and Gloria
1: Gloria is an interesting character because you really don't like her at the very beginning she's just really abrasive to Susie but you quickly then learn the whole reasoning behind it and they have that really touching moment about perfection and Mm -hmm. just because you think that this is something that's perfect it's not No one can be perfect. Right. I think it helps move their relationship. Now they can kind of become partners in defeating these criminals. I also love Gloria's enthusiasm about doing dangerous things.
0: Yeah, She's excited about it. She's like, yeah, this is fun.
1: Yeah. She's like, of course I want to do this. This is great. I want to do this every day. (laughs) <laughs> she's like, and she's
0: uh, like, <laughs> and she's so fearless too. I mean, maybe a bit of that comes with child, you know, childhood naivety, but she's so fearless too. She like walks right by. I forget if it's Road or one of the one of the others, but she kind of like walks
1: Carlito.
0: Is it Carlino? Yeah. yeah. And she walks like right by him without batting an eye, you know. The, I'm
1: I'm just out here selling Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> Yeah, she's she's great. I especially like when Sam gets to the house. He's like, "You need to stay back," but she does not listen at all, and is really yeah. on his heels to go in because she's like, "No, I'm part of this too. This is right. I, I'm helping solve the problems." So, yeah, she's a really interesting character, and I do think, yeah, I was so annoyed by her in the very beginning. She starts throwing <laughs> stuff in the kitchen. But right. she's like, I only threw the unbreakable stuff. <laughs> like I'm not a monster. Yeah, She's just mad. And so I, yeah, she's she's interesting because she's got some some layers to her. So yeah, I I like her. and She's a good partner for for Susie for sure. Yes. What? So let's talk a little bit about I guess the the battle of the film. Susie is having to take on these criminals that have infiltrated her home and they've tried to use her disability against her and kind of playing roles to keep her kind of out of the loop and to get her to find this doll. I'm I'm interested in what your thoughts are when the altercations start intensifying and things get physical and she's having to like go toe-to-toe with these guys and like how she, how she navigates that as someone that's blind.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of a brilliant way that she, she kind of turns the tables and knows that the, how, how to exploit some of the weaknesses in sightedness and, and, mm-hmm. you know, re, being relying on sight and knowing the title wait until dark is that, you know, in the dark, she's able to navigate that space much easier than a sighted person who is is not used to to doing that. And so, you know, she breaks all of the. Which I don't know how you feel about that part, where it's it's kind of more for dramatic effect. But like, instead of breaking all the bulbs, couldn't she have just taken them out or something? But, uh, you know, she breaks yeah. all the light bulbs and kind of kind of makes it kind of kind of uh, sets. You know, she's setting a trap essentially. And she's also thinking on her feet, like when, you know, road is lighting the match and she's throwing the gasoline on and stuff like that. She's, she's both kind of planning out by thinking like, Hey, I know what they're going to be relying on to try to get me. And I'm going to, you know, take that, take those advantages away from them. Um, and then also just improvising as she needs to. And yeah. I mean, she kind of goes into survival mode that that survival is just allowing her to, to deal with whatever situation is is popping up at her.
1: I think that the smashing of the light bulbs is extremely extra, but it is about really setting up her home court advantage. Right. She, but her space has been ransacked. Things aren't where she would typically have them. And we know that that's something really important because she makes handful of comments when Gloria brings back the groceries, when they're putting away stuff after Gloria wrecks the kitchen. You know, she's like, I need to put this stuff away so I know where things are. And so this house has been kind of rearranged. And so it's probably a little less comfortable. A way to have those characters experience what she experiences, which is darkness, right. and i I think it's really, really good. She's a great character in thinking on her toes of like what do I know is near me? What do mm-hmm. I know I can grab easily and use it to defend myself, so like grabbing that knife, being again knowing where everything is, exactly. I love that it's a situation where it's not just about a character overcoming their disability. Is able to use that for an advantage of some kind when taking on these criminals. And we talk about Gloria being kind of fearless. I think Susie is equally so. Like, she's obviously frightened and all of that. But she doesn't drink away like she she won't give them the doll and she doesn't really there's no way for her to know exactly what these people are capable of and it's only when she starts to get inklings of that once she's (laughs) she knows what's going on that she's like all right now i really have to uh have to figure out a game plan here but she never lets oh this is going to be something that's difficult she's She's either going to give it a try or have that other plan to succeed. So kind of the climax of the film is really tense. One thing that also stuck out to me, and I found this interesting on this rewatch, was Rote is kind of going in at the very end to get her with the knife. And he's dragging himself along the floor with the knife. To get to her, she is hiding behind the refrigerator because of how he's moving. It's not making the same sounds as someone walking around in the house because he's not walking. Right. So she doesn't really have a sense of maybe like where he's at, how close he's getting. She's just hearing the sound of the knife going to the floor as he drags. She plays that extremely well, that added level of dread of, all right, he's He's obviously coming for me, but I can't really gauge where he is, but this isn't a sound I really have that familiarity with to be able to do that. So
0: right. Yeah. Rote is a great antagonist for her because they it, it they don't just give her someone to match wits with who can be easily defeated. You know, Rote is as ruthless as he is clever so he's he's not stupid he 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 quickly kind of is just as she is trying to adapt to the situation he is also trying to adapt as she is he is discovering you know that he has maybe underestimated her resilience, and yeah. uh, and so he's adapting, she's adapting. They're kind of playing off each other, and so he is a very formidable opponent, and that makes her triumph over him all the more sweet because we're like, yes, she did it, you know. It's, it mm-hmm. was not an easily won victory, and and especially as she has to kind of adjust her thoughts as you know dealing with Carlino and Mike, who seem a bit more empathetic or or not quite, you know, they 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 want the money and stuff, but they're they're not as sadistic as as Road is. And when she comes to see what what Road's uh kind of take on this, like for him, it's not even really about the money. It's it's more about just uh you know humiliating or hurting other people.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And that's, that's a really interesting observation too, because both Mike and Carlino, you know, at the very beginning, they're, they're essentially duped by rote and they learn very early on of what he's capable of because they find Lisa's body. Mike is smart and, you know, he's the one that calls out the closet where they have Lisa's body because he's like, It makes no sense that this would be locked right now. Um, (laughs) So you need to give me the key. I, I love that exchange because it's really one of the only moments that you see them have the upper hand with Rote, too, because they team up against him. But yeah, I mean, he's killed Lisa. They're like, oh, well, this is not at all what we thought we were doing here at all. Right. Yeah. So they don't want to I think hurt her. They want the money. And I I think that that gives them a little bit more interest because, you know, if it's just someone that's going to be brutal, I mean that's kind of what it is, but you do have uh, especially with Mike, you know, Mike is really smart in how he's playing kind of this character to her, the friend of her husband from the Marines. And yeah, I mean, just in these kind of, especially early on when he first comes to the apartment, you really are convinced by him like he's really good yeah. at this storytelling. It's really interesting. And Rote is someone that uses force and menace. The interplay of those three characters, I think, is really interesting. Apparently, you know, is kind of the goof.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's a comic relief.
1: Yeah, he's the one that when they first get to the place and she's like, make yourself at home. Um, he's like, All right, I'm gonna get some food out of the fridge. And they're a good trio. It helps us explore her character a little bit with that too, because she's really dealing with three different people.
0: Yeah. And I did want to ask you about something related to to the the kind of interrelationships here. And I don't really have a fully formed thought about how what this means but uh the the elaborate plot that they have where they're pretending to be police and mike's pretending to be a friend of her husband and and all all these pretending things and in the you know they're going by a script and so forth mm-hmm. and Susie and gloria are similarly kind of trying to work out you know if not necessarily a script just kind of their own like roles and how they're navigating the situation. to me, it really it puts forth this idea of performativity, which has been kind of a concept that's kind of de- been developed more in relation to um, identity politics and the idea of identity is not something that is an inherent quality. It is a, it is a type of performance because it is shaped so much by social pressures and, and cultural forces and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of makes me think that there's something, I I don't think that this is necessarily something on the mind of the creators or anything like that, but just makes me think there's something here about the performative nature of blindness, you know, where depending on the situation, you, you, make blindness appear a certain way or you use it in a certain way it's it's not something that is define definable in an, in and of itself necessarily so much as how it plays out in, in a certain context so i don't know if you had any thoughts on that again not something i think is fully developed really but i just think i mean the the plot the the, the plot that the criminals have is very elaborate and it, it is it is very much kind of out of that theatrical tradition because this was originally a play mm-hmm. um and so I think it goes along with that but I think it does hint at kind of that that performance of who we are I mean like, like you said she her she eventually is like tell me what you want to be and I'll be it you know
1: mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this ruse that the criminals come up with is so convoluted and (laughs) ridiculous. I've done this in like 30 minutes. (laughs) And instead you want to do like you said it's a play they're putting on an entire play for her. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's. Unnecessary, But I, you know, I think in hitting at themes of performance and in what you mentioned, we see this a lot of times in media representation where an individual with a disability will use an aspect of that disability or exaggerate that aspect of disability to navigate a specific Situation. One of the things that Susie doesn't do is that, however, I think she does work within kind of these assumptions of of what people think her experience is like as a person. Yes. And so, yeah, it's not something that is really, I think, deeply explored in the movie. But I, yeah, I do think that there's something to be said about this play that the criminals are putting on for her. Playing on or exaggerating an aspect of her blindness, but working around the assumptions of, you don't think I'm capable of doing this. So I'm going to kind of play into that hand a bit and then I'll surprise you. Yeah, I think it's something that you're seeing probably uh, more embedded into films like this now, because I think, you know, at that time probably wasn't something that was on a lot of folks' minds.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: I, I still, I the whole ruse of the criminals really does get under my skin for the, <laughs> for the first handful of minutes because I'm like this is the most ridiculous thing like what are you doing why yeah. are you come on and especially because <laughs> they don't understand neither Susie nor Sam have an attachment to this doll they right. don't really care about it right. um you know this isn't something that is of great meaning to them, it's something that some woman that he met once for a small window of time in passing gave to him. You know, it's not like you're trying to get someone's family heirloom or yeah. you're extracting something of, you know, pure, sentimental, nostalgic value. And Sam even references this woman has called for this doll would totally give it to her if I could find it. <laughs> and it's that goddamn Gloria being a little rascal and
0: yeah taking taking a doll. Right, right. But yeah, I mean they're rushing in and and so it's their assumptions, like they're I guess they're assuming that they that that Sam and Susie know that this doll has heroin inside it or, or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're assuming things about Susie because of her being blind. So it's their assumptions that really lead to their, their undoing. And I think that is uh, actually a, a valuable lesson for uh, non-disabled viewers about making assumptions.
1: And I think that's a great way to frame that going back to what we were just talking about with performance element these people are obviously I would say they're skilled and they're for the most part I think they come off as very smart um and strategic but and I mean putting together this um this whole thing obviously took time and thought and all of that but is the doll even there because wrote at the very beginning is well the doll's here we've come in and look for it we couldn't find it but it's definitely here And it's like, how do you know? Yeah. I feel like these criminals missed that day in criminal school. So, (laughs) yeah. um, But I think it, you know, at the same time, going back to the theatrical elements, there is there is something about the way that Susie moves around, especially in the kitchen that has this very to me almost like a stylized feel to it
0: oh yeah she's very
1: and I think it goes back to what we were talking about beginning with her being new to blindness and you know kind of having to learn about the space in a new way so but it's you know the way that she's touching the clock it's and the way that she grabs on to certain things there's that there's that element to it and so yeah I mean I think there is Something to be said about how they are using how both Susie and our band of criminals are kind of using theatrics in some way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To get to their end goal. So, I, yeah, I, if I were to do a remake of this, I would certainly start with the plan and not do that, do something much more simple.
0: Yeah, I I mean, the one the one defense, I guess I would have for it is I think that what they're trying to do is like they think that they can kind of psychologically like, you know, persuade her to just give up this doll. And I think it's like instead of doing something much more practical, they're they're kind of thinking, okay, we'll use psychological tactics here still is a, a bit convoluted, you know, but I but I I, I think it's it's more the sh- showing kind of the, their weakness. That is their flaw, you know, mm-hmm. is their their reliance on this psychological theatrics rather than the practical means of that they could do this a lot more easily
1: and i think that cuts to the core what they're doing is is theater and it's over the top especially yes. with carlino and his performance <laughs> as the sergeant they're doing it for nefarious reasons i think that's you know part of why it does become their bound their downfall is because they both over and under thought as a plan
0: yeah i think what to me like what i would say is that it really sets up that contrast between them and Susie and like Susie's theatricality or however you want to describe that part of it is just being imaginative or creative. Mm -hmm. And for her, I think is what a lot of disabled people learn, especially if they're newly disabled, but you have to have that combination of like practical know-how with a certain create creativity or imaginativeness to you know, learn how to work around barriers and like when mm-hmm. things aren't working out for you, you need to be able to kind of think on the spot and, and, th- and, and kind of improvise. But you also have to have that baseline of trying to figure out the simplest way to get things done, you know. So there's a combination of the practical and the creative that Susie has that I think is maybe a bit more lacking in, in the criminals.
1: Oh, for sure. Let's talk a little bit, and this can kind of be where we segue out of talking about the film, but I want to talk about the very end. So Susie going up against Rote, and then as everything goes dark, we then get the arrival of Sam and Gloria, and they enter into the space Here. What are your thoughts on Sam arrives home? They can't find Susie, but then Susie fills herself behind the refrigerator. One of the things that we talked about at the beginning of this episode was Sam, uh kind of Sam's approach to Susie and her disability and you know really wanting her to be as self-sufficient as possible you know and maybe not always doing that I think in the most beneficial or useful ways but I mean that's obviously the goal but he comes home to this scene and Susie is there She survived What what do you think is going through Sam's mind?
0: I'm it's hard to say I think he's just shocked, and maybe maybe part of him is thinking, you know, maybe I was maybe I was pushing too hard, but but also maybe like this sense of now maybe get maybe he's his thoughts are going in the opposite direction of I can't I I shouldn't leave her alone in the house, you know, she's too vulnerable or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to to say, but I think it's. It's set up in that kind of dramatic way where it's, you know, it's something maybe he would a situation he would have never, I guess, anticipated. He doesn't seem that concerned about leaving her alone. And now that this thing has happened, that he's left her alone, you know, maybe now he's going to be afraid to do that and, and and going kind of too far on the opposite end of being maybe too overprotective or something i don't know that that's just s- speculation on my part but
1: i i guess i just go back to you not only in the beginning of the film where we're kind of establishing the relationship and things like that you know she does make comments and i think she actually makes this comment to talman you know when he's in that role of her husband's friends, uh, friend from the Marines, she make a comment about Sam always wants things done a certain way.
0: His way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if seeing her ability to protect herself with that begin to kind of reshape
1: how he is pushing her to do things in the way that he thinks is best. He underestimates her instincts and her abilities.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends just on how he views it because uh, like I was saying, you could view it in one lens of like, Oh my God, that, you know, she survived, but this horrible thing happened. And if Mm -hmm. I was there with her, you know, wouldn't have happened. Or he could look at it and like, oh, wow, she was able to to survive and and fend for herself. And she's extremely resourceful. So I don't need to be as worried about her. You know, throughout my life, I've had both of those kind of reactions. Whenever there's something has happened where I've been stranded because I missed the last bus on a Sunday night and I can't get back, you know, and then someone has to come pick me up you know, get up in the middle of the night or something to pick me up or my fallen downstairs or something, you know, lots of little things that happen that are just going to be unavoidable for anyone, disability or not, because nothing goes (laughs) according to plan all the time. But, you know, some people tend to react, react in a way where it's, they, they, it increases their worry and other people react in a way like, okay, you're able to navigate this shaky situation. Well, so that's, you know, a sign of your, your ability. So yeah, it just really depends on the person's response and and maybe on how the, the disabled person who has been in that situation, how Susie talks about the experience and how it has affected her. I mean, we don't know that either. This experience traumatized her. Is it is is it going to make her more afraid of being on her own, or is it going to make her more confident in herself and her abilities? It could it could go either way. It is pro- probably a mix of both. So yeah, it 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 just depends on on where you kind of put the focus.
1: I think you make a really interesting uh, point, in, you know, bringing up personal experience. You know, as someone with a disability, we we do encounter so many situations especially as we're transitioning into adulthood where you know there's a a different experience than folks without disabilities because it's suddenly there's a whole other list of things that have to be considered that have to be worked through or have to be part of a day day and you cannot there's no way for folks that don't have that experience to to understand and you know I think that with Sam hopefully he would listen to his wife and would dig in what she's saying and would help use that as a barometer of how things can shift or change you know if she's not comfortable doing something this way I trust that she was able to do it in a way that works for her or I can help her do that so yeah it's it's something that kind of stuck out to me I also find it really interesting you know He's a photographer, and, she's- mm-hmm. and so like his livelihood is based on sight, and particularly based on how he's viewing things. And so I think it really does, you know, create different personalities for them because their experiences are just so different. And so yeah, it's just something I thought about at the end because obviously I think initially it would be like, oh, my my wife is safe, and this is very good, and this is horrifying. But, you know, just what that, what the experience would be afterwards for them. And yeah, it could definitely be an experience where suddenly it shifts to overprotectedness. It's not just, I want you to do these things because this is how you can have independence. It's, you can't have independence because there's, you know, it's just not safe. And someone always needs to be with you because I mean I think even at the beginning when he's you know make sure you have Gloria come over help mm. you out and
0: uh no (laughs) yeah not her
1: (laughs) yeah which at at first I was like all right now you're being a little extra here because this is just a kid that is helping out going to the store for you that's fine like it's okay but then yeah seeing what a jerk Gloria was <laughs> her, I was just like, all right, yeah, I, I kind of get the animosity between them. So and Sam
0: seems oblivious to it; like he doesn't seem to understand the way that Gloria gets under her skin. And he's like, you know, oh, you know, be nicer, and mm-hmm. you know, understandably because because she's getting picked on and stuff. But it's like, you know, if if you want your wife to be comfortable, like maybe allow her the decision. Like you could say. Remember, if you need anything Gloria's here or not, make sure she comes over. And I I think Sam really is just though he's concerned for her and he he wants her to be okay. So I don't I don't know that it's it's like I don't know that it's coming from a place of him trying to control everything so much as like the line that you pointed to of he has a certain prescribed way that he thinks is going to be the best to help her. And that's what he's going by. He's going by this very prescribed thought process rather than kind of being open to, to more to her input on it. You know, he's not, it's not complete, completely rigid, but it's more of like, I want to be sure that things are there, that you're getting getting what you need. You're getting your own skills that you need, but you're also getting help when uh, when you need it. But it's this very like this is this is what needs to be done. You need to learn this. You need to have Gloria come over rather than like, well, you know, what do you think? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's I think it's more of just him not not necessarily considering her input as much until she gives him a little bit more pushback. And so yeah, hopefully it's the, the dialogue can kind of help. They can kind of help each other work, work through the situation.
1: I think one thing that we also need to take into consideration is that he's in this new experience with her, you know, Right. so she makes the comment about, hey, can I go with you on your trip? And he, you know, they have that joke of hand but it would be quicker if I just go by myself so I their dynamic is really interesting and I yeah it's it's hard to say what what the impact of this event will be you know hopefully it's at least going my hope is you know because he is at his core I think a really caring person and just wants you know his wife to be happy and independent, you know, hopefully it will just kind of be you know her story and her experiences with a bit more weight and ask follow-up questions like you were framing of okay, well if you don't want Gloria to come by, you know, do you want someone else right. to run to yeah. this for you? Do you want do you want me to go before I head out? Right. Um, I don't know, do that could have been an option. <laughs> yeah. Um pull your own weight. Um <laughs> so yeah it's interesting. But at the end. The, we at least, I think, have a relationship that is founded on a genuine love and trust of each other. So, and, you know, they talk about how they're not big fans of the apartment um, because you get, I think it's that neighbor that's going on the ski trip is like, our our apartment building is terrible and we should form a group about it. And yeah, they, I think they make a comment before he heads out about the apartment not being the best, but now their apartment is completely demolished. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that is wait until dark. One of the things before we we wrap up, I want pose the question: Are there films that you've seen that give you a similar feeling to this? Whether it's another character that is blind or has kind of a a similar
0: setup? Yeah, I think there are a few. So the most obvious one is one that you already covered, Hush, Mm -hmm. with a deaf protagonist, you know, menaced by a home invasion killer, you know, so I think there's, it it, it kind of follows in that tradition of pretty disabled woman being menaced by, you know, a, a killer antagonist. Um, And similarly, you know, she proves to be very resourceful in in fighting off her attacker. And also in, in a kind of a weird inversion of this is would be don't breathe where you have thieves breaking into the house of a blind man and seeing that, you know, they've underestimated him because he's not only is he extremely skilled at fighting them off, but also has some dark secrets of his own that he's hiding? And there's a there's also a movie that came out last year that I can't really recommend to people, but um, it's called Sightless and has a similar setup of a blind woman being kind of gaslighted by a, a nefarious antagonist. So yeah, there's a there's a few movies that kind of conform to the this sort of general story structure. And interestingly, you mentioned the fact that Sam is a photographer and it made me think of get out just because that was another example of a film with kind of a minor blind character, but you know, he, he kind of strikes up a conversation with the protagonist who is a photographer And this, this blind man is kind of bemoaning the loss of his sight because he's an art critic, but he's still kind of trying to stay invested in that world. And I don't want to give any spoilers, but he does play kind of an important role (laughs) later in the film. Um, But yeah, when you, when you mentioned that, it just made me think of that. And some of the, some of the themes of sight and visual, like, visual pleasure that i think are part of that film and in a much different way than we're getting in wait until dark but it just is is kind of a similar thing about you know visual versus darkness i guess
1: yeah no those are really great suggestions and i love i love that that, so i think that will do it for this episode thank you uh, so much for listening as always uh, this podcast is a proud member of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. And if you haven't subscribed to that feed, which if you're here, I hope you have. I now do because there are new shows popping up on the feed all of the time. I'm not going to give anything away, but there's one new show on the horizon that I think you all might be interested in. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'll leave it at that. Pretty exciting stuff.
0: Okay, Um, cool. Well, I'll keep my my eyes out for that.
1: There will be more information coming about it. It's going to be, I think, a lot of fun. So, but there's new shows being added to the feed all the time, and they're all pretty amazing. And there's a pretty wide array of stuff too. So, obviously, lots of horror content. That's kind of the bread and butter. But there's also a show, White Women in crisis and you have some amazing folks talking about the new series physical on apple plus so really just getting lots of different vibes and feels so subscribe and find lots of cool content there but of course i need to thank you andrew for spending some time talking about this super fantastic movie I'm yes. so glad that you suggested this one. It has been a lot of fun. Tell folks where they can find you and the Freaks and Psychos podcast.
0: Yeah. So thank you, Nicole, uh, for having me on. This has been a lot of fun delving into all the, the different facets of blindness. And and I mean, this, this Wait Until Dark probably... Is my favorite portrayal of blindness uh, in horror, and maybe in just in film in general. So I I really appreciate it. And your your show is has been awesome. The anatomy of uh, I'm sorry, I'm I'm getting the the name mixed up. Anatomy of a Scream, right? Pod Squad. There's so many great shows on that network. It gives so many different great uh, voices a chance to, to talk about horror. And yeah, you can find Freaks and Psychos on any, on any major podcast platform. You can go to freaksandpsychospodcast.com to find the episodes. And you can find us on Twitter at Freaks Psychos. And my personal account is Andred the Blind. And we're also, we have a Facebook group. I think it's just Freaks and Psychos podcast on Facebook. So if you look that up, I'm sure you should find it. So yeah, find us there and feel free to reach out and let us know what you think.
1: I cannot recommend your podcast enough. It is phenomenal. So if you are just hearing about the podcast for the first time, which again, I know I've mentioned it before. So hopefully it's not new and you've you are checking it out, but do go and listen. You have really done some fantastic work there and looking forward to the the episode on werewolves coming soon.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I, I love werewolf movies. So it was it was kind of cool to talk about. I love the sort of discussion of metaphors of disability, like with the zombies, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a kind of another way of thinking about not just like representations of disabled characters, but how these themes really kind of permeate horror in general.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's something doing an episode on the universal monsters, you know, I think when you get into characters like the Wolfman, Dracula, there is a, I think, a a strong connection to the disability experience. As it relates to those characters because you know we often think about disability and otherness and the way that these characters are framed is that they're other Um, yes so especially in films like frankenstein which is probably my favorite of the group so yeah werewolf films i i know i've mentioned before I not my favorite has been a subgenre that I have struggled with (laughs) there are some really good ones that I absolutely love but it's not like a werewolf film is not going to instantly pique my interest but I've been doing a good job of seeking out some different werewolf films and I'm i'm really coming around to them
0: oh good nice glad to yeah. hear that
1: yeah one of the most recent ones i watched was good Omens. it's so interesting and really beautifully shot and has this really telling story to it and it a kind of centers on a child that is transforming
0: so are you talking about the uh, brazilian movie is it good manners
1: oh good manners yes
0: Thank yes. You. yes. Yeah. Really yeah. Fun. That is an in- interesting one for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. So I'm I'm excited because I as I'm getting more into them, I am looking forward to kind of beeping up my knowledge.
0: Cool. Glad to hear that. Yeah. Hopefully the episode will, will also help and help to deepen your appreciation. I know that there are not a lot of great werewolf movies and that's just the the sort of concept has not received the same kind of execution that maybe we've seen in in some other monsters but uh can't can't help but love just the the idea of transforming and and the wolf creature and all that kind of thing so that's that's what appeals to me
1: very cool well that will do it for this episode hello this is editing nicole coming at you because this was recorded some time ago so i wanted to start off by thanking andrew from the freaks and psychos podcast once again for being my first guest i had such an amazing time talking to him about this wonderful film and it's always a delight to chat with him please 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 check out the freaks and psychos podcast and of course that can be found where you get your podcast but if you want to follow them on twitter please do so by going to freaks psychos and that leads me into the fact that now you can follow bodies of horror on twitter that's right so if you want to follow bodies of horror and i wish you will you can go to bodies of horror keeping it kind of simple there right so I do hope that you'll give us a follow and hey if you want to keep the conversation going send me a message. Um, of course you can always reach out by uh, sending me an email at bodiesofwhore at gmail.com. Again I must thank the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad for giving Bodies of Horror its home. If you haven't subscribed please do and hey write a review rate that stuff is really helpful not only helping people find bodies of horror but all of the other amazing amazing shows on the feed so all of the housekeeping out of the way thank you all so much for listening i hope you really enjoyed uh this episode with my first guest it was so much fun and until next time
0: scream pod squad